you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, or follow along on the screen. Matthew 6, <clears throat> we'll be reading a portion of the Sermon on the Mount and considering God's will for us here, but before we do, uh, let's open with a moment of prayer. Father, we pray that the words of your servant's mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. These are the words of Jesus. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, one of the greatest mental health issues in society today is anxiety. Statistics show that 18% of adults will suffer from an anxiety disorder, which is much more severe than just general anxiety, at some point in their lives. And the problem is worse among young people. For boys and teen boys, it's 28% will face this. And teen girls is worse, it's 36%. So about a third of our teens will suffer severely with anxiety. And so it's a miserable experience for anyone who has dealt with it or is dealing with it. And it's equally miserable uh, for those who are caretakers and loved ones of those who suffer. Issues with anxiety are surging Ask any pastor or counselor, and they'll tell you that anxiety, worry, and stress are very common problems, even in the church. Are they here too? Because they're in my church, and they're in my life. Right? They're, they're in our lives. I do a lot of counseling in my congregation, and I found a biblical counselor who create, uh, put five observations together about anxiety and Christians. I just want to share these in the intro with you, just to give you a sense as to um, what uh, counselors are saying, and perhaps uh, what you or your loved ones are experiencing. Here's the first observation. Everybody worries to one degree or another, and this issue is not whether we worry, but what we do with our worry. Okay, that's obvious, okay? Number two, if it's left unchecked, worry has many damaging consequences, including anxiety, uh, body tension, headaches, exhaustion, irritability, insomnia, broken relationships, absenteeism, reduced productivity, and so on. Third observation, 
Worry tends to be preoccupied with the future. It's the opposite of depression, uh, which generally focuses more on the past. Observation number four, Christians are ashamed of their worry. And why is that? Well, they see their inability to trust God or obey his commands not to worry, and which in turn causes additional worry and anxiety. And so they're concerned about their spiritual condition, uh, but they don't want to talk about it. They want to hide it. And fifth, worry can often seem like background noise or a constant fog. It becomes so much a part of our existence that we almost get used to it. We, it's like uh, tinnitus. If you've got ringing in the ears, uh, you don't notice it, of course, until you're, it's quiet, and then there it is. Same with anxiety for a lot of people. It's always there, and it's become normal. And so the question for all of God's people is what are the things that you worry about? What Jesus gives to us here in this particular section of Scripture are the very basic needs. But you and I don't relate to these basic needs as much because we have these needs met. The things that we worry about in modern society are more about relationships or finances or, or work or school issues or health. The pressure that our schools and, and just growing up puts on kids is immense. There's pressure to perform, pressure to get good grades, pressure to be serving in the community, serving in church, all to get into the right college, all so maybe you can get a good job, also that hopefully you can pay off your debt. The pressure on youth and young adults is immense compared to even when I was a kid just a few years ago. And so these are the types of things that cause us to worry. And so, how does it work? Worry, worry begins in the mind. You, you think about your future needs. You start to wonder how those things will be met. And then when worry is left uncontested, it, it turns into the next stage, which is anxiety. Anxiety isn't so much mental. It's, it's effectual. It's our feelings. It's our emotions and our, our affections. And so, what, what happens is we can feel nervous. We can feel afraid, even so far as to think that we're doomed if things don't change and so if, if that anxiety persists in that way, then we get to the third step of this cycle, which is stress. And so worry is in the mind, anxiety is in the motion, stress manifests itself in the body. And we can feel all kinds of symptoms, out of breath, shaky, headaches, stomach aches, or any number of other symptoms. Um, one of my good friends, a young adult um, in a different state whom I, where I served years ago, knew this cycle so well that he would check himself into the emergency room um, before the panic attack happened. And he would let himself have it in the emergency room. He was just sick and tired of what, letting his family witness it. So these things are so incredibly real. It's a vicious cycle. Now, before we go any further, I do need to give a, a very important marker here there's two types of anxiety that we have in, 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 in uh, our world today. The one that I'm talking about is anxiety based upon, um, I guess, our responsibilities, how we process and deal uh, with what God has given to us in life. The other type is more physiological. It's more chemical. It, it requires a different approach. And so 
If you're one of those people who has that, which a lot of people do, uh, this sermon is not targeting that kind of anxiety. This sermon is targeting what Jesus says is important for us to know about our, our worries that turn to anxieties, that cause us stress, and what to do about those things. So even though the statistics tell us that anxiety and stress is on the rise today, it's nothing new. The Lord Jesus in his first sermon, addresses this issue. It's that important. And so we are the beneficiaries of the wisdom and love and care of Jesus in this particular passage. He's concerned about you and me with this very issue. In fact, Jesus loves worriers. Jesus loves those with anxiety. He, he has compassion. He understands. You just imagine him Uh, teaching this, reading what they're thinking or seeing in picture what they're thinking. And that's where he says, don't worry, trust me. And he wants to give to them uh, tools to be able to do that, resources and understanding to be able to do that. And so for our intents and purposes this morning, I'd like to cover this chapter um, under two main headings. I noticed in the bulletin, I forgot to get the headings in. Uh, So the first one is the futility of worry. And then the second will be the freedom from worry. So the futility of worry. Jesus tells us in verse 34, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So when Jesus mentions all these things, he's speaking about all of our needs. And so I've asked you already, what are the things that you worry about? I've shared with you that they can be more than what we see here in this passage because they're likely things to do with finances and family and future. And so all these things are what Jesus has in mind when he says, um, all these things will be added to you, especially our needs. But we need to observe, again, this is the futility of worry. And the first sub point is that worry gains nothing of value. Worry gains nothing of value because worry is a fear that we won't have our needs met. It's, it's that uh, tomorrow we'll be unhappy and unfulfilled. So most of us can't relate to being worried about food or clothes because, of course, in California, there's no way you can be poor. There's, there's resources everywhere, right? But this was not the case in Jesus' day. Food and clothing were survival, matters of survival for Uh, those people, and for many people in our world today. But notice what he says in verse 26. Jesus, again, seeing their minds and knowing what they're worried about, gives them a new image to ponder. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. What is worry? It's, everything's in the mind, right? And what Jesus wants you to do is go to nature, Go to nature and just look at the birds and ponder them, study them. Look how they don't, they don't have anything of need because God is caring for them. He wants us to look at creation, these insignificant creatures, and then ask the question, are you not of more value than they? Well, of course we're more valuable than these little birds. We're the crown of God's creation. We're image bearers 
of God. We have been given a soul and we will live eternally. And so we're so valuable that God sent his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come to rescue us from our sin and our sure punishment in hell. And here the eternal son of God himself, our Lord and Savior, asks us to consider, is worrying going to add a single hour to the span of your life? Again, worry is futile. Worry brings us nothing of value. So when we worry, when we become anxious, when we experience stress about the future, we're not getting ahead at all. At best, we're spinning our wheels. At worst, we're putting our best energies into things that we cannot change. You see, our best energies are going into the things that we can't change. And we think about it when we're basically declaring to God that we really don't believe that he will take care of us tomorrow. That's ultimately what we're saying when we give into worry, anxiety, and stress. But that's why Jesus asks us, is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? And again, Jesus offers another picture Okay, get out of your head to the pictures that are causing you anxiety about the future. Jesus says, look at the lilies of the field. They neither toil or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his glory was arrayed like one of these. And in 1 Kings 10, we see Solomon's splendor. The abundance of gold, the silver, the robes, the ivory, the trading ships, exotic animals, a beautiful palace, and of course, wisdom. The queen of Sheba herself marveled at his incredible wealth, and yet Jesus said that Solomon, in all his splendor, was not dressed like a simple lily that is here one day and gone the next. The point is that God, as the author and sustainer of the beautiful and intricate creation, can be trusted to meet each of our needs. But those who struggle to trust, Jesus gives us a label, a description, a title. He says, those of us who struggle to trust, he calls us, oh, you of little faith. So where does this trust break down? Well, to help us gain perspective, if you look back to chapter six, verse 24 of Matthew, right before our passage, and this is what we see. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so what, right at the outset of this particular uh, passage that we are studying, where Jesus says, therefore, and then we have this passage on anxiety, he is comparing and, and contrasting uh, the uh, serving of God and the serving of money, or the serving of God and, and, and the worry about money, the building of, of God's kingdom and the building of my little kingdom, you see. He's pitting those two against each other to remind us that most of the time when we have these types of thoughts and feelings, it's because of the things that are in our understanding of what we are trying to build here on earth. And Jesus wants us to shift our focus from our little kingdoms we're building I know some, some men who have amassed tons of wealth, and yet it's still a tiny little kingdom in compared to God's great kingdom. And so Jesus is giving to us that perspective. 
He's calling his listeners to examine their hearts. Are they devoted to the Lord or to their wealth, to his kingdom or to theirs? Now, the Gentiles, the unbelievers, they chase after wealth and they worry about having enough for tomorrow. That's normal human nature. But believers know God and they know the giver of all good gifts and they know that God has promised to care for them and provide for their needs. So, so Jesus asks his hearers, if, if God clothes the grass of the field, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. And so what we must conclude is that our worry reveals a divided heart. Perhaps this is why Christians feel so ashamed when the worry is exposed. Because worry reveals a little faith. But the beautiful thing is, a little faith is still faith. It's enough. And so what Jesus is doing is he is saying, the faith that you have, though little, because of your struggle, it's still real. I gave that to you as a gift. Therefore, it won't be snuffed out. But we also need to look at the fact that worry exposes our wrong assumptions of God's character. Notice how Jesus reveals God's character to us in verses 26 and 32. What do you notice? Jesus talks about your heavenly father. Our God cares for us as a tender, loving heavenly father. And if he feeds and knows the needs of plants and birds, he will certainly do the same for his image bearers. But again, I do counseling. And so I run into things like this. And maybe you can relate. Some people imagine God not to be loving as we've just described, as Jesus has just described, but instead angry. And perhaps they have that view of God because an earthly father was a poor example an angry father, an angry home. And then when they think of God, they think of a heavenly father and he's like my dad and I don't want him to be like my dad. That stuff is hard for people to reconcile. Another one, some people imagine God to be a killjoy, perhaps because they grew up in a legalistic home or church and there was always something wrong with everything going on around them. And eventually they got sick and tired of God because he killed all the joy in being being alive. But that's not the, the Bible. That's not the Ten Commandments. God gives us freedom to enjoy him, to enjoy the world. And so those are the types of challenges that people face. And one more, we can just say that Jesus <clears throat> asks his hearers here, if God clothes the grass of the field, will he not much more help you of little faith. What we see in these false notions is that God's character is being revealed as heavenly, a warm and loving heavenly father. But we experience God differently based upon what we perceive him to be. Another one I I just uh, think is important to mention is some people think God is stingy, that he doesn't want us to be blessed. He wants us to remain uh, poor and needy and miserable in that. And that's just not true. Uh, God 
promises everything to his children. And so these false notions of God's character due to their own experiences in in life can can hinder uh, our ability to understand his love for us. So yet what what happens when we experience worry and anxiety and stress because we think of God wrongly, we, we don't believe he's for us. We don't believe that he's got our best interests in mind. We, we don't believe that he's good and loving. And so, of course, when we think about our future, we worry. We, ne- we, we neglect to go to the Lord and ask him to care about these things for us. Or worse, we pursue solutions for future issues and worries according to our own ambitions, in our own way, according to our own priorities. And so we leave God, we leave the principles of Scripture, and we go in our own direction to solve the tension and anxiety within. We see that ultimately worry is futile. It gains us nothing. It reveals our divided hearts, exposing our need to truly know who God is and his love for us. And that's what leads us then to our second main point, the freedom from worry. Jesus tells us, do not be anxious about the things you need because your heavenly father knows that you need them. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And so the freedom from worry begins when we seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. Now that verb seek implies uh, being absorbed in the search for something. It's a persevering with a strenuous effort to obtain something. And so we could say it's a daily seeking, a daily seeking, an ongoing regular seeking. And what does that seeking entail? What does it mean to seek God's kingdom? Well, some examples. Seeking God's kingdom is Jesus' invitation to get out of the worry cycle. And we do that by seeking the king, by loving him as our savior and friend, worshiping him, studying the word. I can't tell you how many times I've, I come across anxious people and they haven't read their Bible in the morning. I know it sounds so cliche, but they didn't read the Bible. They're left to their own thoughts. And so number one, to, to seek the kingdom is, is to seek God in his word. Another one is to pray for God's kingdom to come. God's kingdom is perfect. The kingdoms we build are fallen, they break apart, and the the, the beauty of God's kingdom is that it will never fail. And so whatever we do to invest in the kingdom will pay dividends forever. There's no waste of time, there's no waste of energy, and there is a 100% guarantee that that investment will pay off, spiritually speaking. So there's no reason to worry when we choose to do the things, to pray for the things that build God's kingdom. We can talk too about sharing the gospel, spreading the gospel, choosing that over uh, laying around and watching TV, talking to people, sharing the good news. Seeking the kingdom is is to submit ourselves by obedience to uh, the Lord of the kingdom, the king, even when it costs us personally. Another is to conduct our businesses in ways that that please God. Another is to speak up on social issues, uh, promoting righteousness in the world, even amidst 
the, the upside down and backwards culture that we're in, we still have opportunities to speak and to uh, vote and to encourage a godliness, a certain level of righteousness in our world. So many give up on that, and we're called to engage in that. And also to seek the kingdom is to, to love and serve other people, as we read from Colossians 1.3, dealing with our sin, loving other people, being patient with them, forgiving them, and living uh, as evidence that Christ has changed our hearts. So that's what seeking the kingdom looks like in a, in a very basic way. But what does it mean when, when Jesus ties together God's kingdom with his righteousness? Well, when God is recognized as the king, righteousness must prevail. In fact, the kingdom of God implies righteousness. God himself cannot have a kingdom any other way, you see. And so this righteousness is both the imputed righteousness that we are given uh, by God's election, but it's also imparted to us. Uh, so it's a legal standing, but it's also a moral, ethical living. So we would use the words justification and sanctification. It helps us to be able to be anchored in the truth that we are, we are saved, and now we are going to serve. We are living out of that salvation in our sanctification. And so it's the picture of what we have in Psalm 1. What's the picture in Psalm 1? Well, it's this flourishing of a tree because the roots are planted by streams of water. That's what it is for the person who delights in God's law. And another picture would be John 15. The branches that remain in the vine flourish. And so it is with the person who remains in Christ. And so, so notice that word first. Seek first his kingdom and righteousness. What Jesus, what Jesus is saying is that the disciples' first and best effort is to be directed toward God's kingdom before any of their own needs. It's really simple, isn't it? As my kids would say, Dad, no duh, no duh. And they're right. But if you have related to the fact that there's worry and anxiety and stress in your life, it could be traced back to the fact that we're distracted and we're not seeking daily, regularly, faithfully. And it's not dependent upon us. Obviously, we couldn't do it at all if God hadn't enabled us, but there is a responsibility uh, to, to, to set our eyes on Christ and to look to him. And that's what verse 33 is about. When we do that, then all the things that are of importance, are of need, are of concern, God promises he will add them to us. He takes care of that. We don't have to scramble and panic and, and, and strategize to the point of uh, foolishness. We're saved by the king. We have what matters most. We have Christ. We have salvation. We have his security. We have it all. Even if everything else around us isn't as we had hoped. Our calling, our priority, our worry can I say that? If we're going to worry, this is our worry. To seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. So if I'm going to worry tomorrow, it's going to be, have I, have I spent time with the Lord? That's a good worry. Because that worry doesn't bring about anxiety. That worry doesn't bring about stress. That worry simply brings me to the cross where I know that the Lord loves me.
But the reality is, we'll still have lots of trouble in this world. And that's what Jesus is saying, even with the trouble, look to me. Now, there's one part of the this second point I want to highlight here is that we're to trust our heavenly father. And to help us understand that, um, I want to look at the catechism, question 121. And we have this, this question that says, why has Christ commanded us to address God as our father? So Jesus tells us twice, our heavenly father in this passage. And so to ask this question in our catechism and answer it is helpful. And it's to awaken in us, to awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer that should be basic to our prayer, a childlike reverence and trust that through Christ, God has become our father. And with that, will much less refuse to give us what we ask in faith than will our parents refuse the things in this life. And just a chapter later, Jesus brings that up in Matthew 7. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? And going back to our catechism, question 122, why the words, who is in heaven? And these words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly way and to expect from his almighty power everything needed for body and for soul. When we think of God's heavenly majesty, we we replace the worry that we have with confidence that the God who created all things and sustained all things is also our heavenly father. And just one more catechism question as we draw this to a close. What do you believe when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? Listen to this answer, that the eternal father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, is my God and father for the sake of Christ, his son, I trust God so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul and will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me and this veil of tears. He is able to do this because he is almighty God and he desires to do this because he is a faithful father. Let that sink in today. And tomorrow when you wake up, Let that sink in again. Each day that God gives us, he promises that he is both able and willing to provide for all of our needs. Can you possibly worry yourself into a better situation than this? No. The antidote for anxiety comes as a gift of the gospel, the good news of salvation for all who believe. So brothers and sisters here in Zion, do not worry about your life or your body. Your heavenly father knows what you need. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all things will be added to you as well. Let's pray. Heavenly father, we thank you for your love as a tender and gentle and loving heavenly father. We thank you for all the things you provide for us 
We thank you, Lord, that you have given to us a way out of the cycle of worry and anxiety and stress that have given to us, Father, the ability by your spirit uh, to have peace and joy and, and trust and confidence. Lord, whatever might be going on in the lives of your people here, we pray that uh, they would bring these things to you in prayer, knowing that you love them, that you care for them, and that you want to see them blessed. And Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name.